Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Roger Nygaard. And before we get to Roger, I have a couple announcements. First and foremost, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there, see articles that I've written. You can see articles that some of the guests have written. You can see links to my social media. You can see links to their social media. By my social media, I mean, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. There's links to our Facebook page. There are links to Stitcher Radio and Apple Podcasts where you can get this show for free, as always. Subscribe, please. Give us a good rating because that helps people find the show. I would appreciate you do that. If you think you might be right for the show or maybe you know somebody who's right for the show, well, then by all means, write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That is TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, Roger Nygaard, if you've been listening to this show for, oh, I don't know, eight years... You might remember Roger Nygaard. Roger was one of the first guests on this show. He had just completed a documentary called The Nature of Existence, where he went around the world and asked people, why do we exist? Why are we here? It was really interesting, really fascinating. And now Roger's completed another documentary feature, and it's called The Truth About Marriage, where he consulted experts around the world about marriage. What is it for? Why do we do it? Where did it come from? He shot all around America, in Europe. He was in Brazil, and uh, I really enjoyed watching it. So we talk a lot about the movie in this, and uh, maybe a little less travel-heavy than some of the shows, but hey, I was really interested in the subject, and as uh, Roger and I are both two longtime single men of a certain age, <laughs> I guess this, uh, this subject matter uh, hit us both right where it counts. <laughs> But anyway, it's an interesting movie. It's called The Truth About Marriage. And there are links at TravelTalesPodcast.com to where you can see the movie on demand. It will eventually be on streaming services and the like. So be on the lookout for it and check it out. Roger's day job is actually pretty damn cool, too. He is an editor for two of my favorite comedies ever, Curb Your Enthusiasm and Veep. He was the editor for Veep. He actually sits in a room with Larry David and edits Curb Your Enthusiasm, which has got to be hilarious, right? We talk a little bit about Bali, his new favorite place in the world, Spain, Costa Rica, and some other places that he loves. He combines his art, his work, and his pleasure all in one. That's the way to do it. Please enjoy my conversation with filmmaker Roger Nygaard. to live out of this country and I've been spending a lot of time out of the country and, and try to increase yeah. it every year until I spend more than half the time out of the country. That's yeah. my goal. I'm moving in that direction. Now, if you were going to live overseas... Bali. Did you shoot there for that? Um, I did film one wedding in Ind- Indonesia. You know, it just... It only has one tiny clip in the montage of weddings and it's a bunch of people dancing at a wedding. I didn't use the interview. Okay. When you people ask you what you do, do you say you're a filmmaker or do you say you're like a filmmaker. An editor or 
I okay. saw, if I have to condense it to one word, filmmaker. Okay. But yeah, what I mostly most of my time is spent in an editing room. Right. Editing comedy. That's my specialty. I know you work for Veep and Curb Your Enthusiasm, Enthusiasm, but two of the greatest comedies of the last ten years. So that's that's a nice. If you're going to do it, the outtakes alone must be amazing. It's the best job I've ever had. Is been working sitting in a room with Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's great. Does he does he sit there with you and and just or do you send him a cut? No, he comes in. It, oh wow! Okay. He looks at every frame of footage of of the raw footage after I finish my cut. I do a cut and then he comes in and watch it. We watch it together, and he may have a couple of notes, but then we watch all the takes, top to bottom, wow. for the episode, and then he'll identify jokes or th- things that I didn't put into the cut and says, try that in also. Then I'll go and jam everything in that he indicated that fits, and then we'll have a really fat cut, and then it's about cutting it down to time. Because now, I mean, they do run over a half hour, I've noticed, this this season. Yeah, they've been getting longer and longer <laughs> since it's no longer really about time slots because everyone's streaming. Right. Oh, that's a good point. And it's kind of, in many ways, it's... It's good and bad. It's good because it's released their creativity, and they don't have to just fit it into a smaller format. Right. And when we did that, they would cut out a lot of jokes to make True. it fit. Because you can't cut story, but you can cut jokes. Yeah. But it's the stories have gotten bloated and longer, and the discipline is not as strong, forcing you to <laughs> get make the story tight. Have you won uh, Emmys for that? Nominations, but I haven't actually gotten to the okay. altar on, on that show. I swear Veep was one of my top... Maybe in my top ten comedies of all time. Yeah, that was that cast was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Veep was another. I got a nomination on that show, and that show has probably the most jokes per minute. JPM. Oh yeah. Of any show on television. Oh my god! Totally. The most words per minute. Nobody breathes. There's no <laughs> breathing or stopping. It's nonstop. And I asked Dave Mandel about that. Who was the showrunner of the last, the final three seasons? About the pacing, I said, Dave, is it ever going to be too fast? Because I tend to cut fast, and he likes it fast. And his feeling was that it's like Billy Wilder it was is his one of his main influences, and one of mine. So I, we totally connected. I said, oh, oh, so what? Have you ever seen One Two Three? And he goes, Yes, One Two Three. That's the film. If you've never seen it, never seen it. Put that on your queue. In your queue, it was about this uh james cagney plays the ceo of, of a coca-cola office in east berlin when it's being changed into east and west actually in berlin when they're severing it and the russians are taking over one side and the americans are uh, have the other side and it's a comedy about this guy and his daughter who wants to get married and it's not the dialogue is non-stop rapid fire <laughs> you will laugh so hard you I, no matter how much i build this film up it's funnier okay <laughs> i gotta see it I never heard of that one. It was one, Cagney's. Two, three. It was his final movie. What and, year was that? Until about? like sixty something. Sixty. Oh wow! Okay, that's what Google's for. Yeah, people. We'll look or, it up. Look it up. IMDb it, folks. But it was his last film until many years later. He did a film called Ragtime. He came back yes. out of retirement, but he quit there. He retired because he had so much difficulty spitting out all that dialogue, and he had so much dialogue to oh. say so fast that he said, "I." Uh, he, he like he felt he reached his limit, and he yeah, retired. Right. <laughs> After that movie. So is The Truth About Marriage, is that your third document, feature documentary? Well, let me count. Boy. Uh, first the one Trekkies, was Trekkies, and then Trekkies 2. Two, then okay. Did Six Days in Roswell about UFO fanatics. That was followed by The Nature of Existence, and so this is number five, The Truth About Marriage. Okay. For the people who didn't hear your uh, first 
visit here, which was 2012 or 11, um, we talked about nature of existence. Basically, in a nutshell, you went around the world and asked people, experts, and uh, I guess I guess it would be experts in this? Religious and, experts, and scientific experts. Yeah, yeah I found the Why experts. are we here, you asked them. For every major belief system, I found an expert and then interrogated that person and <laughs> made them explain what's the point of everything. And now this one is on marriage. Now, this kind of hits more close to home to me, and probably you, because neither of us are married. Right. It's a single guy pontificating about marriage, which is part of the charm, I hope. Was there one thing that made you want to do this? Was there some incident that said... My own failures. Absolutely. Yeah. And and maybe you can uh, commiserate with me, because it's hard to hold a relationship together. But, well, it's hard, but also the institution of marriage... You either, I never, it always struck me as kind of an outdated thing. Maybe this says more about me, but I don't know if you, there's a little bit of that in your movie, which I watched last night, I enjoyed it, but uh, what were your opinions going into it, and how did they change? Confusion was my number one opinion. (laughs) (laughs) But were you for it? I mean, did you try to get married before, and it didn't happen? Three times I had been in love with someone, and the way I knew it was love is because of how much it hurt. Yeah. (laughs) That's how you know. If it doesn't hurt when you break up, you're not in love. Right. I mean, really hurt. It's like pulling a tooth out. <laughs> and that root is about 20 feet long. Right. I was in, in these, three times I was in a relationship where I was imagining we'd be married and having kids. And, you know, you start having those thoughts of the future and imagining what it would be like. And then each time it was a disastrous ending of some kind or another, or a painful ending in which was, I guess, I started to feel like, is it just me, or is it, 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 it's kind of everybody, is what I found out. Everybody's having a hard time. (laughs) It's sort of like, and here's how I approached the film. If I was selling you a product, if I'm a car salesman, you came to buy a car from me, and I said, you're going to love these cars. They're wonderful. Everyone's getting them. They're wonderful. They're, it's going to deliver all the happiness you could possibly want. It's, you, you got you to have it. You'd say, wow, I really want one, right? But if you ask me, oh, great, does it have any guarantee? My response would have to be, no, no guarantee. Half of them are going to break within four to seven years, and the other half that, you keep, that keep going are going to take a lot of hard work <laughs> to keep running. You'd say there's something wrong with your product. Yeah, there's a guy, there's a comic I know, Dan Natterman, who does the same kind of bit. He's like, you wouldn't, if, if married people, you wouldn't, you wouldn't buy a car from someone who sold it the way married people sell marriage. <laughs> you know, how's it run? <laughs> Not gonna lie to you, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Has its good days and its bad days. <laughs> Some days it's great. Other days you just want to choke it in the driveway. It's like, yeah, you know what? I'll take the bus. <laughs> Clearly something's wrong Right I mean but I th- Also a lot of it Has to do with Wanting kids or not I mean did you want kids Because I well, that's, that, that's been the more The sticking point with me Is that I never really Wanted them So if Certainly as a man we, If you don't really want kids It really takes a lot Of the incentive Yes Away Well that's That's the purpose Of marriage Is, to, is a is a re- The reason One reason marriage Was invented Or came about Is, is a way It was a way for people To uh, to commit to pooling their resources to raise children. And 
nobody really, or men, I shouldn't say nobody, but a lot of men don't don't want children until they have one, and suddenly they can't imagine their life without children. Sure. Yeah. And that's what happens. You you kind of get fooled, tricked, sucked into it. <laughs> it's mistake happens, or, or you know, it it, it it's too or soon. societal pressures, and Something religion happens. plays a big part in it. I mean, it. some people want kids, sure, but that's our biological imperative, is to reproduce. Yeah. So we want sex, but sex is about having kids. Yeah, but I mean... Okay, well, let's, let's start with the travel thing. How many countries, <laughs> how many different places did you go to, to to research this film and shoot, and how long did it take? My documentaries are like travel logs. They're, they're gigantic reasons for me to travel and meet people and ask them penetrating, probing, difficult questions and, and learn something at the same time. And in this case, what I did was I started out with a core question, which is why are marriages or why are relationships so hard for people? Then I got about a stack of books, four or five feet tall, and started reading all the books on the subject. Then I made a list of all the experts who wrote the books and who were out there doing the research, found out where they were, made a, put a big map on the wall of the world, and put push pins in to see where they are, where they're located, and then I would start to see where they're clustered. Okay, here's the East Coast of the United States. Here's the Pacific Northwest right. around London. Los Angeles. Then London, and then there's a guy in southern Spain that I really wanted to talk to. So now my travel starts to take shape. Was and, the guy in Spain, was that his house? Because it looked pretty sweet. If You, you can buy an <laughs> amazing house in southern Spain for a really reasonably price. Reasonable which, price. Where was he on? The, which coast was he? Near on? Malaga. Oh, you, uh, yeah. Uh, in the foothills. The British guy, right? Of southern Spain, yes. A lot of expats there. Yeah. A lot of a lot of Brits running away from things. It's over a there. great place to be. <laughs> I was in Malaga and Marbella, which is beautiful down mm, there. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah. And Sevilla. Did you go there? Uh I passed through. Oh. Yeah. Love it. I I mean I had the best olives of my life. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so I know in southern Spain. <laughs> That's all the yeah, it's olive gardens, olive trees everywhere. And wine. Yeah. It's a lot like California, uh, the climate and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, it's very livable. Very I mean, livable. I, I've narrowed down three places that I'm thinking about moving to or spend most of my life in, and one is nearby, southern Portugal. Yes, I went to the Algarve a couple of years ago. The other is Costa Rica, and the sure. third is Bali in, in Indonesia. They're all winners. Those are my top three, which are pretty, pretty open to expats, good food, inexpensive, wonderful people. Yes. Uh, so if you were going to do a plan... How long do you think you can last? I mean, if you think I mean, you're doing pretty well now, you mean financially to no, be able no, to pull no. it I mean, off? Just like oh, I'm figuring it out, you know, doing yeah, got the yardstick out, tolerance wise, uh, uh, patience well, wise, political. I mean, you've been in L.A. for a while. Yeah, well, I can't wait to get out of L.A. <laughs> Every time I have come back, how long back, have you been here? <laughs> I moved here uh, thirty years immediately okay. after college. I just drove out, didn't know a soul. I tend to find like here in New York and. Um, San Francisco, basically, where cities where people go to make it or whatever when they're young. There's about a 20 year itch, mm-hmm. really. After about 20 years, you start to look around going, boy, I don't know if I have to keep living this way. <laughs> and, you know, and just like, I mean, we were talking before we started recording that you sold your house. Yeah. I sold my house. And they were probably both right around the 20 year mark, right? I was there for when 10 years. When you wanted to clear this slate? I mean, well, being in L.A. Oh, being in L.A., yeah. I lived in a rent-controlled apartment in Santa Monica first for seven years, and before that in Hollywood. And yeah, I'm doing it backwards. This is yeah, how I ended up here. Yeah, you, you, come, <laughs> you do kind of come full circle a lot of times in life in many ways. Yeah. 
And so I kept, once I, the first time I ever traveled in my life was in 2001 or 2002, somewhere in 2000. I took my girlfriend for Christmas. Uh, I said, let's go on a trip. I'd never traveled anymore, and except with family. And I don't count trips with family as a vacation. Right. <laughs> so, but I'd never really been out of the country on a vacation. So I just got up on the internet, started researching. What popped up was Guatemala for Christmas what? time. Of all places. Okay. Yeah. People were writing about it. And so I just said, let's just go there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I found there's a person there who organizes, helps you, like a local liaison. You know, you find the person who knows it all. Sure. You find a local helper, a local angel. And so she helped. I said, here's the cities I wanted to go. Antigua, Chichicastenango, and Lake Atitlan. All three were amazing. I, and I, I mean... Th- after I had been there for one day, it was like, I want to keep doing this forever. The food was amazing. Meeting people was wonderful. The, the colors, the, their, their cemeteries are all colorful. <laughs> They're not dra- gra- drab and gray. That's what happened. You caught the bug. Everybody just needs that first step a lot of the time, you know, and a lot of it's fear-based that they never yes. go anywhere. You go the first time and you're It's going to be so hard. Yeah, and it's wonderful. We were yeah. there for 10 days, and we had such a great time and, and enjoyed. We stayed in this monastery in uh, uh, in Antigua, in Guatemala. It's this little town with cobblestone streets, and they had built these different cathedrals or, or churches and everything out of stone, which were kind of semi-destroyed in earthquakes because it's a very seismically active area of the world. But the people still go there and have mass, even though there's no roof on these places, right. and nearby, the monastery has been turned into a hotel, so you get a room that where a monk used to live, and it's actually pretty high in altitude there, so it cools off at night, so you have a little room with a fireplace, and it's so romantic and wonderful, and the food is amazing, and you can walk around this little <laughs> town, it's so small, you can walk everywhere, and they've got markets, <laughs> I mean, any place with cobblestone streets, yeah. you're going to win. And you've been back since, or did you just... No, but I would in in a second. I'd highly recommend Guatemala. Well, you've been to many, many places since. Yes, and from then I just kept going. Yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) and I find excuses by making documentaries now about ideas that take me. Do you bring a crew, or is it just you? Sometimes, sometimes it's just me. Hire local guys. I've done that, but mainly, most of the time, it's just me and my cameras and microphones. And then I go to the per- find the person and set up the cameras, put on the mics, and start asking the questions. That's amazing. And then I yeah, cut the footage together when I get home. <laughs> Were they pretty? All your uh, subjects pretty willing to talk, or did they had to be coaxed into? Or did people turn you down? Most people, if they've said yes, it's harder to get them to shut up. Yeah. Then they love to talk, and they love to talk about what they're passionate about, which is what I'm there to ask them about. Sure, and they all have a book to sell too. Often, it's helpful <laughs> for both; goes both ways. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, but was there a commonality that you found in all these experts? Um, you cover. I don't want to give too much of the movie away, but there's so much you can't give it away. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know, but uh, they did have a lot of common things, and of course, communication is one of them. What were some of the other? ones that make well, a successful marriage. Okay, here here's how do you improve your relationship? How do you improve your marriage, right? The first half of my film is about what are all the problems with marriage as an institution historically, we don't even do you, no one even knows where it came from. Uh, I found out, but most people don't know that it's a very new invention in human history. 
in right. only the last five percent of human history of people have been getting married as we know it. So you have to say whatever we've been doing for ninety five percent of the time is probably more normal than what we've been doing for five percent of the time. That was one thing I discovered, and the second half of the documentary is okay. Now that we know the problems, as long as we're here, what do we do about it? And people always say, "Yeah, you got to have communication." Well, what does that mean? Well, I found out. And here's one of the major problems. And if guys who are listening to this, if you take nothing else away from this podcast today, <laughs> here's the one thing I would imp- try to impress on anybody. And I've become a proselytizer for this. The biggest mistake, and I was doing this, we sabotage, sabotage relationships because we don't understand that what you and I need is not the same as what our partner needs. We have different needs, but we end up giving our partner what we need and it doesn't help. It doesn't, and they do the same. They give us what they need. And so we just, uh, we, we react negatively to it because that's not what I want. It's not how we, it's like the language of love. There's a book called The Five Love Languages that, uh, we, Gary Chapman wrote and he, where he spe- specified we have five different ways of being, of, of loving or being loved. And we each have a different top two. And our partners, you have to learn your partners way. For instance, acts of service, physical touch. Those are two. I knew found for me acts of service. That's how I like to to give love to someone. And if they prefer gifts, if my acts of service won't count and it etc. You can read his book and you know get right. deeper into that, but the main thing is that we don't understand what our partner wants usually and so we don't give it to them. One thing that that I can tell you that we do need is first of all, there's a feminine and a masculine, right? There's a masculine energies. Men, we will all agree that ma- on average, men have more masculine energy than feminine. We all have a little bit of both on our best days. But you, can, you know, sometimes <laughs> you know, I'm in my feminine, yeah, I have feminine needs as we all do. But when someone is in their feminine, or if you're with a partner, and the best partnerships are when there's one masculine and one feminine. Doesn't matter, gay or straight. It's irrelevant. It's the best relationships are when we complete each other, not duplicate each other. So two masculines don't work well together. Two right. feminines don't work. I do remember a guy saying that that they didn't. Nobody wants a mirror image of them of themselves. Yeah, you get annoyed. You hate yeah. it. You want someone. <laughs> we fit together better that way. And so the feminines, the, like this this relationship vitamin that the feminine needs daily, you have to give her, or she'll be unhappy. And it's this, she needs 15 to 20 minutes of your undivided attention, your being present and listening to oh, sorry, her. what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> see, see what I, that's so comedy, folks. communication <laughs> isn't necessarily talking back and forth, it's giving your partner what they need. So here's what you do, you come home, put your cell phone on airplane mode, and you say, honey, how was your day? How are you feeling? And then shut up. Yeah, really, they just they want to unload, but they just want you to listen. Exactly. We, I saw this. I remember. I've heard this before, but I remember that part in the movie. It's very and hard. Men, men's instinct is well, you know, they'll tell you about it, what a horrible day at work, and you go, well, why don't you do this? We want to fix it. Don't do it. Yeah, they don't want you to fix nope. it because if you're fixing it, that makes them feel what? So I'm wrong. You know, they they just feel shut worse. up and listen. Yes. Oh, it's hard for men to do that. It and is. It's a it discipline really that takes time to, to figure yeah. it out about and, and to, to train yourself to do. So what you do want to do instead of offering help or suggestions or fix-its is to just express empathy. And the way you do that is to say, oh, well, no wonder you're feeling that way. I'm so sorry to hear that. 
That's wonderful that that happened. That's all you do. And 15, 20 minutes per night, she needs that to feel satisfied. Right. And, and when she's satisfied, you get a lot more sex, you get a lot more happiness, you get a lot more of, of, of it's good for, for everybody's happier. Yeah. That's, if you, if you want to know the secret to improving your relationship, it's an experiment. Why not try it? It costs nothing. Try it for a week and see if it, if it doesn't improve everything uh, all, all around in your relationship. There's a handful of actual couples in the, that you know. These were friends of yours, most of them, right? In the film, I followed, yeah, profiled three couples. Actually, there were several couples, but three that I went to the weddings Right. And filmed them at their wedding, and then checked back three, five, or seven years later to see what happened. Because that's a slippery slope. Because we all know couples that have stayed together and split, and all that other stuff. How did you narrow that down and decide on these three? Random chance, you know, we all get invited to weddings, and I started thinking, are these people going to make it? Because it's a coin flip, right? It's a fifty-fifty coin yeah. flip. It's it, at best those are your odds, and the odds get worse if you're getting married a second time. It goes down from fifty percent. Divorce rate to sixty percent. Does it really? Or it goes up, and then and the third marriage is it's seventy percent divorce rate. Yeah. By the third one, you go, hey, maybe this marriage thing isn't for you. Well, it's it, it, it the odds are against you, and but, I started to wonder why is that, and what, and and I began asking them questions on their wedding day, and then I banked that footage, and then went to interview the experts, and then came back to follow up. Well, you had the one friend that. Uh, married the woman from was she Czech or Croatian or something? She was uh, yeah, she's from pra- Prague. Pra- oh, Czech, yeah, okay. Um, and I don't know what that guy does for a living, but if that screenwriter, does... he wrote the movie Constantine. Okay, that was a sweet house. He met her I at a party. That... He met oh, her at really? a party at my house. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got invited to the wedding oh. a few years later. The after house they just... alone. <laughs> I'm sure that helped. Uh, that helped the attraction. Um, well, doesn't it? I mean... Oh, that, my God. Yeah, but that, you talk about that. I mean, what, what's you gotta attractive build, and... You got to build a nest. And how women look for different things when they're looking for a partner and when they're not. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. They are looking for different things depending on where they are in their cycle. Yeah, that Whether was they're taking birth control or not. Because it throws off the chemicals or whatever. Yeah, well... If this was kind of a mind blowing thing, I discovered th- that couples shouldn't get married until they go off the pill for a year and make sure that that they like each other. Because when a woman is taking birth control, it makes her body think she's pregnant all the time. So now she's going to be attracted to the type of man she would be attracted to if she was pregnant. If she's not pregnant, she's going to have. Different things that she's attracted to, different cues, different personality <laughs> aspects. <laughs> and so there are examples of this where people are dating, they get married, they decide, let's have a child. She goes off birth control, and now suddenly she can't stand him anymore because the cues that, are, that she's naturally reacting to were being overridden by the birth control. And, and so now it didn't matter... Uh, who he was, if he's Brad Pitt, how, how uh, rich he is, it's chemical cues. Because we are, you know, chemistry, right? People say you, you, you've got to have chemistry with somebody. Well, what does that mean? Well, they've done studies, and they found that when two people meet, if you feel attracted to someone, if you feel that spark, that wow, we immediately felt so strongly attracted, 
That's your two, your, both your bodies have recognized your chemical makeup and, and you, you experience that as passion. And it's a particular thing. One thing they found, they did this study, uh, it was a Swiss scientist, anthropologist, socio, sociologist who, uh, it was called the T-shirt study. He took 40 men's T-shirts, had men wear the shirt for a week and without you know, bathing, I guess, and then collected the shirts and then had another 40-some women smell the shirts and rank them by which shirt they thought smelled the most attractive. Then they looked for correlations, and they found what correlated was the immune system of the individuals. They call it the Major Histocompatibility Complex, the MHC. There's a hundred different immune system genes and somewhere you and I are somewhere on that spectrum and every woman is somewhere on that spectrum when you meet somebody if their immune system is similar to yours you're going to be less attracted the more dissimilar their immune system is from yours the more attractive you perceive them to be among many other factors but this is one factor and the reason is because you want mother nature wants two people to reproduce who have different opposite immune systems because it gives the baby a better chance of survival to have multiple immune system ah. gen- genetics to draw from. Right. So that's going on below the surface. <laughs> so much for free will in many ways. Yeah. But don't you find, though, in culturally, around the world, at least I've seen, and that marriage rates and birth rates seem to go hand in hand uh, with either A, how religious the culture is, and B, how educated the women are. And the more educated the women, birth rates and marriage rates will go down. That's true, yes. So, and it's only a recent thing in our history where we actually educate women and they have their own money and freedoms. So it's only natural that their birth rate and willing to marry would go down. They have more choice just just the invention of banks. We take it for granted that there's a bank on every corner right. in a city. But banks didn't exist at one point. And before there were banks, women were beholden to men. And in fact, there were used to be laws in this country that forbade women from owning property. Only their husband could own property. It was it's only in the we last couldn't even vote for a, 100, 100 years, years ago. So, yeah. <laughs> So things have changed, obviously. They were the property you got when you got married, right? Was it all yes. that with a dowry and everything else? Me, women were part of the property at one and, point. Yes, know, separate and joining armies or countries, feuding countries—that's a way of making peace. Making peace and making alliances. Sure, Game of Thrones. Yeah, there was a word <laughs> for uh, the word for for wife was peace weaver in in uh, some cultures because it brought tribes together. Absolutely. But even this concept of getting married and doing all these things is recent, the most recent human history. What people have been doing for most of human history is living in small tribes that were nomads. Yeah, hunter-gatherers. Right? Yes. We, human, Homo sapiens have been around for 200,000 years. We've been getting married I for know. less than five to 10,000 years. says it's only been about 5,000 years. Uh, he, his numbers are probably a little mistaken <laughs> based on the data that we have. I think his data is not based in in any research. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if we, for 200,000 years we've been around, and for only the, for the last five or 10,000 years we've been practicing marriage. Before that, what people did is they lived in small tribes of 150 people or fewer, and the tribe would move around, 
everybody. You only owned what you could carry. Everybody shared everything. One of the uh, authors I interviewed is a guy named, a psychologist named Chris Ryan, and he wrote a book called Sex at Dawn. And his thesis, he argues in that book, is that in those tribes, people, we know they shared uh, child rearing, shelter, food, and he argues sex. And the reason that they believe that, many anthropologists, is because they found tribes that still do this that still exist today or have when anthropologists have studied tribes in the Amazon rainforest, in Mongolia, different places around the world. They found tribes where that the idea that sex is something that you own would be foreign to this tribe. This tribe, everybody shares sex, and if you didn't, in one tribe, they had a word for it. They called you, they, if someone who wouldn't share sex, they'd be called stingy with their genitals. <laughs> and... So it's completely Stingy foreign. with their genitals. This idea is foreign to us because our culture is obviously very different. But if you shared everything, and you, any one of the children could belong to you, and there's no worry that you're going to lose your husband, or you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to raise your child, everyone works together. What, when everything changed was about six to 10,000 years ago, humans discovered or understood, came to understand the idea of agriculture. So now they stopped moving around. They stayed in one place, and the idea of ownership began to occur. Well, this is my land. These are my crops and my animals and my wife. And so then they, the next thought was, well, I want to make sure that my genetic offspring inherits all this from me. How can I make sure that it's my genetic offspring? Now, a woman knows it's her baby. Because it comes, yeah. she sees it come out of her own body, right? There's no doubt; it's her baby. But you know, there's an old phrase: uh, "Daddy's a mommy's baby, daddy's maybe." <laughs> You're right. How does he know for sure unless he practices what the uh, biologists call mate guarding? Some species will do that, where they they keep an eye on their mate to make sure. Sure. But if he's out working in the field or hunting, he can't keep an eye on her twenty four seven. What can he do? Well, in w- one way around, it was to. C- create this idea of marriage, which is a way to control the sexual behavior of women. They put this social fence around women, so their sexuality is now contained. I like the part of the movie when they said that uh, in the Bible, they said, you notice adultery is not, you know, not just sleeping around, it's coveting thy neighbor's wife. Right. Not necessarily, you could, you could sleep with the prostitute or the, you know, the mistress or whatever, you know. Anybody you want, as long as sure, it's not your not neighbor's wife, wife or daughter. Yeah, wife or daughter. But uh, adultery is a sin for women. Yes. Not so much for men. And if you look at most religious texts, because men can't get pregnant, but women can, and there's the fear. And men were writing the rules yeah. at that point. It became, it shifted from, a matriarchy in tribal times to more of a patriarchal society, which is the way we exist now. But there's so many versions of this around the world, and and where did you draw the line? I mean, you do talk to a rabbi there, but, you know, Muslims have their own way of, you know, and certain types of Muslims have their own feelings on marriage and things like that, and, and you know... Polygamy, maybe, right, and having yeah, harems. Hindus and, you know, and the Mormons have their own thing. So, um, where do you draw the line, and how did you know where to cut it off? I mean, time, of course, and money. You can't, can't go everywhere, or you could try. I don't know. As far as the documentary, I just wanted yeah. to really find out how can we make my relationships happier. Okay. And so, you can learn with what I learn as I learn it, 
I'm, I'm working out my problems. But along the way, I learned quite a bit. And for instance, polygamy was the first natural outcome of this move to agriculture. Because after, over time, you would have some men accumulating more property than others. And pretty soon you have lords and then you know, barons and then kings and pharaohs and sultans and what have you who, who get way more of the goods than the serfs or the peasants. And, in that, and more of the women, Absolutely. So you've got a king. It was not unheard of. In fact, it was common to have 5,000 concubines. Now, if you've got one man with 5,000 women, that means you're going to have 5,000 young men who don't get any. And they're going to be frustrated, and they're going to cause problems, and that's not good for the kingdom. So eventually, the solution to that was monogamy. Okay, everybody, even the king, it's one man, one woman. That's the new rule that emerged. So everything had to go underground, all the cheating. That's why you have cheating and, and philandering. And we practice today a version of polygamy that's called serial monogamy. Every time, you can switch, but you got to get rid of the old one before you can take on a new one. Right. And publicly, we have to be monogamous. But uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of lying and deceit and cheating. And why, do we, why all the lies? And one of the couples in my documentary is this polyamorous couple who live in Eugene, Oregon. Yes, they're the uh, Renfair type people. They right? work at Ren Fairs, and they, in order to be polygamous, or po- po- to be uh, polyamorous. polyamorous, they have to be completely honest with each other. Yeah. The whole point is... It's no, the way it works, really. Right. You can't be... And th- so the relationship works quite well for them, and it works well not necessarily they because happy. they're polyamorous, but because they have to be honest, and there's no surprises. Yeah. Now, if you go out on a date... I've done this. You go on a date, you present your best self. I'm putting on a mask for, for this person. And then you, she's doing the same. And then we you know, maybe start a relationship. Maybe we get married. And over time, eventually that mask is going to slip and there's going to be some anger, disgust, uh, shock. <laughs> right. <laughs> surprise, at the very least, <laughs> surprise. I thought you were this nice person that you pretended to be. And so you, now you get angry sometimes, or whatever your right. faults are. But I remember you saying, like, or in the film, that there was uh, marrying for love is even more recent than 150 marriage. years we've been marrying for the idea of love. Yeah. Because before then it was uh, yeah. arranged marriages or marriage for survival or property. And this idea of... Or this is the only way you were going to have sex if you, get, if you get married. Yeah, in certain uh, societies, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The idea that I'm a special person, I have a birthday, that I should find my soulmate is a very new concept since that has only occurred since the Enlightenment about 150 years ago or so. We take it for granted that that this has been around the way it's always been, but it's not. <laughs> right. It's brand new. And so no wonder we're all frustrated with this new product. Yeah, but don't you think that, I mean, there's, there's being in a couple and then the legal act of marriage. You can have one without the other. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, the, and that's one thing I tried to make clear in my documentary. In the, in the Truth About Marriage, I end the documentary with a very clear delineation Okay, if you're going to get married, just understand it's all it is is a legal contract. Yeah. That People get married for visas and it you know, defines how you're going to share property. Yeah. Finances. There's insurance in this country people get married for. Yeah. yeah. There's no legal uh in a marriage contract there's, there's no legal rule that says you have to be nice, be a good listener, be good in bed, do anything that we have all these assumptions, they're add-ons 
that we, and assumptions yeah. get you into trouble. And one of the things that the experts told me, they all tended to agree on this, the best, one of the best ways to ensure success in a relationship, if you're thinking of getting married, is to do premarital counseling. And religious couples tend to do better than non-religious couples because they're forced to do, to do counseling, not because they're religious, yeah. but because they're, they, they sit down and talk about what are the rules. My Catholic friends did this with, with a pre to pre-K to counseling or something like that? Yeah. For Catholics, and then, like, Jewish couples do it as well. Yes. With the rabbi. Yeah. And I wrote a a companion book that goes along with the documentary, and at the end of the book, I put a a, a personal priorities statement that couples should discuss, fill out and discuss before they get married. (laughs) So they get on the same page with what are their personal priorities. I mean, that you should have a, a financial disclosure also, with yes. your partner, but also a priorities disclosure. I had a uh, a lawyer once tell me, who helped me incorporate once, and she handled divorces and things like that. And what she said, that couples who come see her, she'll know right away if it's going to last or not. And one of the ways she knew is, A, they never talked about money before they got married. And it's that and sex are the two reasons people break up, more, first and foremost. Uh, but also, she said, when a, when a saver... Mary's a spender. She's, you know, she knew it wasn't going to work. It's like if you're not on the page of, you got to think about money kind of in the same way. But if someone just like, oh, just spend it and one guy's tight or vice versa, it's, it's not going to work. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be really, at the very least, it's going to be very frustrating. You might, not, you might think, well, neither of us has a lot of money, so what does it matter? Well, you, what if you have credit, right? You have good credit is an asset. Yeah. And your partner may As have... crap credit, you inherit it. You inherit it, and your credit will get destroyed by that person over time. Well, so, you, you have a same-sex couple in the marriage, um, and that's a new concept, at least in this country. Right. It's only recently legal. Yeah. What is it, Oberfeld versus Hodges? I think is the Supreme Court decision that yeah. made it legal, and so a new concept and could be hanging by a thread, for what we know. <laughs> right. Well, people should, you know, you get what you vote for. But do you uh, did you find any kind of difference between, you know, your theories in terms of whether it's a same sex or uh, opposite sex, or pretty much they just it's the same same thoughts. I mean, I started same rules, on the path basically. of should I f- do a whole chapter in the documentary about gay marriage and then i started to realize it's almost irrelevant it's not about right. gay or straight it's just about relationships and they need people need the same thing from each other in relationships right and one of those things those relationship items like listening and women have to there's a reverse there's an opposite side of that coin which women have to understand for men or the the feminine partner whether it's a gay or a straight couple, the feminine partner has to understand that when someone is masculine, or even when a woman is in her masculine phase, that the masculine needs to disconnect. And it's as natural as the moon orbiting the the earth, the masculine needs to orbit away from his partner. When When both want connection, the feminine wants connection all the time. The masculine also wants connection. But once he has it, he starts wanting freedom. Right. And so then he's yearns for freedom, and so he's got to pull away. And when he's got freedom, he starts to miss her, and he wants connection again. He goes through this endless, natural cycle. And if you try to stop it and get in the way of it, you can't, you got to stay with me all the time. 
he's going to get frustrated, and then frustration will lead to anger, which will lead to fighting. So that's the vitamin that the masculine needs, one of them. And the feminine needs to understand that. But what will what really helps to facilitate that, a successful cycle for the masculine, is for, for the man to say, to announce his disconnection. Honey, I'm going to go golfing with my pals, and I'm... And then when you announce the disconnection, you also announce when you're going to reconnect. I'm going to go golfing with my pals, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you at dinner tonight at 7 o'clock. So now she knows you're disconnecting, when you're going to reconnect. She feels safe, and, and she's no need to be insecure. And, and very important, make sure you're home at 7. <laughs> yeah. Or call if you're not. But be, you have to be true to your word. You, you have to keep your word. Right. It's better to take your lumps up front. And if it's going to be eight, say eight. If it's going to be midnight, say midnight. If it's going to be all weekend, say what it is. You can't be someone else, right? You can change your behavior for a while. You can change behavior, but you can't change into something else. You're going to be you. And both partners have to accept each other for who they are and accept yourself for who you are. The only path to happiness in a relationship is acceptance. Right. That, that's what they, the experts all taught me <laughs> well we got to talk about the guy in brazil don blanquito don blanquito the most I don't know single wh- guy i've ever met in my life i don't know how you met this guy or where you found Randomly. him so expand <laughs> explain who he is he's a white rap artist i have traveled to brazil five times in my life i okay. fell in love with that country the first time i went there was for a film festival for trekkies uh and then the nature of existence also screened there and I've been back many times. And one of the times I was there, I met this guy who was an American living in Brazil. He went there during Mardi, Mardi Gras, loved it, also fell in love with that country. And it's obvious why. The women <laughs> are beautiful. I've been to Brazil. Yeah. One, uh, just the culture is so open. It's like the whole country is like a house where the parents are gone all the time. <laughs> it, that's, that's the feeling you sex get. Sex is in the air the minute you get off the plane. I don't know. Wh- celebration, not is, just sex. It's celebration it's fun, of yeah. life. Just something that you hear the music, and it's like, why am I dancing down the sidewalk? I don't know. It's it's, just... it's a wonderful, exciting place. The beaches are amazing. In Rio, I, there's a reason Ipanema Beach is so famous. It, it, Gar, Lifeguard Tower Number 9 is where the, the people are the most beautiful you've ever seen. The further <laughs> away you get from Tower Number 9, they go down sure. in beauty, from 10s to maybe 9.7s or 9.6s. They're still 9s. Right. Because it's Brazil. Of course. But that's the tower. anyway i met don blanquito there and he had fell fallen in love with the country also he went there for mardi gras decided to stay learned portuguese learned how to rap to meet women and and did and thought he was going to spend his life there dating you know millions of brazilian women until you know you know the old woody allen joke if you want to make god laugh tell him your plans sure yeah, <laughs> what uh, he met someone and she changed his life. Yeah, that's amazing. But he, uh, where were you? Were talking to him? I guess it, it was like some a naked woman just sitting on the bed, yeah, and you're doing the interview. He's a rapper with her. <laughs> now, did he insist she was there, or did he yes, just, of course he. She's did. a prop because he's a rapper. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he invited her over for the interview. You know what I thought of him? Like I don't know if anybody's told you this, but. And it's ironic you work on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's like a white J.B. Smoove. He looks exactly <laughs> like... He, ta- he sounds like him. It, watch him again. Yeah, what? well... And you'll see what... I mean, they're about the same height. They're kind of like the same facial features. Leon Black. 
is is his character. And Don Blanquito, translated from Portuguese, means Sir Whitey. <laughs> and so he's making the most of his whiteness in a in a country where he stands out. Yeah, and he did. And he was like the mayor of Copacabana, just walking around the streets, high-fiving everybody, <laughs> handing out his music, making friends with everybody. It was a blast hanging out with him. And he's just, he's got, he had charisma. I mean, when I met him the first time, he as a documentarian, that. you recognize this person would be great on camera. And he was one of those people. When did you first do the interviews down there with him? Your first interviews? The uh, before? I met him, I was there for a film festival, and I met him at, for lunch and had got that feeling. And I flew back four months later and interviewed him. Was this like 20. 2010 or or 11, it was my first interview for this documentary. Okay. It forced me to kind of get my act together and get my questions. And he was like my test subject who became my guinea pig for my first interview. And and I learned a lot from that interview. (laughs) And then I I kept going because, you you know, you don't know with a documentary, you don't know what you've got until you do an interview and then you feel it immediately when you, you're yeah. sitting with someone and the questions make you excited. The answers get you excited. Where does he live now? I know he moved to the States. Back to Los Angeles. Oh, he's now in with LA. his Brazilian okay. wife and their daughter. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. What was the craziest thing that ever happened to you, whether it's this movie or the last movie or any of the movies you shot? Let me tell you how why I finished this movie and why it took me seven years to finish. I started shooting with Don Blanquito and then I would do an interview here and there and work other jobs to pay for it, like Curb Your Enthusiasm or Veep or The League or other shows. So you funded this all yourself? Yes. Wow. And I sometimes thought I'll never finish this, or I don't even know how to finish it. I don't know what the story is. It, it was. It's a, I tackle con- their concept documentaries, which means I find a question that's impossible to answer and then try to answer it. Like the last one was, why do we exist? How do you how do you do a documentary on existentialism? It's, it can't be done. <laughs> That's what intrigues me. This one, solving the problems of human relationships. Uh, what's the answer? And so that intrigues me. And as I was working on it and coming into year six, I amassed tons of interviews, fascinating interviews with psychologists, anthropologists, marriage counselors, a divorce lawyer, and all these couples. And I was just kind of overwhelmed, and I thought, I just got to get away, step away from it, go to my home base, which has become Bali, which, once I met Bali, it was like, Brazil who? Right. <laughs> I still love Brazil, but, but Indonesia is, is really captured my heart, this island of Bali. Have you been to any other islands besides I've, Bali? I, I, I've uh, explored all over Indonesia. All, oh, you have? Okay. Yeah, Lombok is an island right next door. I went to Gili T, Gili Trawangan. Gili is amazing. Gili Trawangan, Gili yeah. Air, Gili Menlo. All of them are wonderful islands. It's, I love Gili because there's no motorcycles, no cars. Yeah, no it's cars. just horses and bicycles and walking. It's yeah. so peaceful. and Tourists, though. A lot of backpackers. and things. Yes. And you can walk, you know, you, at dinner time, you walk along and they've got fish fresh caught on ice. You say, I want that one. Then they take it and go cook it. Yeah. It's, I love it there. So, yeah, I've explored many islands and want to continue because I've got a lot of islands in archipelago. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going back. I thought uh, at the time I was editing Grey's Anatomy, season 14 of Grey's Anatomy, and they had a three-week break, which you need at least three weeks to go there to really, you can't go for much less than that because yeah, it's so far. flight alone. Yeah, you know. it takes two, two, two days to get there. Yeah. I booked my flight. 
my Airbnbs, hotels, all my travel, and then about a week before departure, Mount Agung blew up, which mm. is Bali's volcano. And that shut down air travel for three days. And all these tourists are panicking and trying to charter boats to get off the island to get home. And it, it was a mess because airplanes can't fly only because if they fly if, if through that cloud, it that ash gets into the airplane's engines and shuts the airplanes down and they crash. So they had to shut everything down. Now, it they reopened after three or four days, but I had to be back on kind of a razor-sharp return to go back to work. I'm scheduled to go to work. And so the Mount the, the Mount Agung just kept rumbling and, and you know, wasn't quiet. And you just <laughs> didn't know if it was going to erupt again. I thought, okay, the volcano's talking to me. It's saying, Roger, this is not the right time. Finish your fucking documentary <laughs> and quit playing around. So now I had three weeks open in front of me which I was going to spend on vacation. And everyone thought I was going to be gone or away from town, so I didn't really tell anyone anything had changed. I just decided, okay, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to edit for 18 days straight until I have a first cut of my marriage documentary, which I did. I edited Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, New Year's Day, New Year, the whole 18 days straight until I had a first cut done. And I finally did, and I had a two-and-a-half-hour first cut. But now I knew what it was missing and what I needed to finish it, which was I needed to check in on my couple's. I realized, Michael <laughs> Apted style. And I realized who I was missing. I was missing the Gottmans, John Gottman and Julie Gottman. There's a few, when you talk to marriage therapists, there's a few researchers that they, they tend to re- refer to their, their research. All of them re- refer to the Gottmans research. He's like the oracle of marriage therapy. There's an institute in Seattle. So I thought, I've got to talk to them. And I had sent emails, and I tried and got no response. So I tried. I doubled my efforts. Was that the older guy with the— Yeah, it's a couple. Then I interviewed them together in the documentary. Okay, yeah. yeah, Older Jewish couple. Yes, yes. And they're both psychologists. She's a clinical psychologist, and he is a researcher. And they opened the institute, the Gottman Institute, for repairing— and restoring relationships in Seattle. Anyway, I'm getting nowhere with them. Finally, I get their publicist on the phone, their PR person. Her name's Katie, and she explains they don't do interviews. It's just, <laughs> it doesn't, I'm so sorry. You, you can't do it. They only come into the Institute once a month. They live out on an island, like everybody does, I guess, off of <laughs> around yeah, Seattle. Sure. And they just don't do it. And I, I you know, I don't take no for an answer. I, I you know, but persistent I, i'm i'm passionate i want to finish my film so i'm explaining but i'm a filmmaker you know i work on curb your enthusiasm right now and veep and i've made you documentaries i'm Look. trying to play every card just, just <laughs> you know i'm a legitimate guy i'm leg- made legitimate i made a film about star trek fans called trekkies and she goes oh john loves star trek <laughs> and that was my in nice so she said okay send me a letter and i sort of laid on the star trek <laughs> stuff thick and then they agreed to the interview did you sign it, Live Long and Prosper, Roger Niger? <laughs> right. I did interview him and asked him about his feelings about Star Trek. Oh, really? While I was there, yeah. <laughs> Where was he when you did that movie? I mean, well, that uh, been great. hopefully for Trekkies 3, I can use that footage. <laughs> Is there going to be one? I'm noodling on that. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, give me, so we, we know about Costa Rica, Bali. Um, tropical. They're all, you know, yeah, warm, Spain, tropical, beautiful. Portugal. Good I mean, food. Where haven't you been that you want to go? I have not been to Alaska. Oh. I'm dying to go there. I'll be there this summer. You can 
Come oh, up for a cruise. I would love to go up there. Yeah, I'm a. I love fishing, and and I oh. go to Canada a lot to go up to Ontario. Oh yeah, great fishing up there. I love that. I would also like to go to many of the other countries in South America I haven't been to yet, like Colombia. Just came back. Medellin. We should you, talk. You should. Uh, yeah, we'll Chile, talk about that after. Peru. I just need to really kind of do a swing through there, uh, and. Because I, I love the food and the people. Panama, too, you should check out if you've never been. If you like Costa Rica. List, yeah, right. It's the new Costa Rica. Right? Yeah, and now that's getting found out. And <laughs> then we'll have to go to somewhere else, like Nicaragua or something. Right. But Medellin El, El is very Salvador. popular and hot yeah. right now. Yeah. It's very big. Belize. Yeah. Uh, uh, Are you a diver? Or I'd like you, to go to Tulum. You I scuba just, or anything like that? Uh, uh, snorkeler. It's not okay. good. Snorkeling's enough for me. Okay. <laughs> is there, I mean... When you go to a place like Bali, if it's a lot of surfing and snorkeling, yeah, you surf, uh, badly. Okay, yeah, I was just wondering how you spend your days. I mean, here is my perfect day, Roger's perfect day in Bali. <laughs> I'll usually rent a villa, a private villa, because uh, you can get a wonderful villa there, and it's inexpensive, with a pool and maybe with a chef, and near or on the beach, as near the beach as possible. There's one I stayed in, and I brought you some pictures. There was this house. It was a typical classic Indonesian house, which they're made of wood, and they'd replaced the the panels, the wood, the walls with glass. So the whole house is like living in a terrarium. Wow. Up and down. The whole it was amazing. <laughs> On the beach. It was one of my favorite places in Indonesia. So I'll my Roger's favorite day is to wake up, cut some fresh fruit up for breakfast, maybe add a little yogurt on top of it, and then maybe do some writing get a little work done for a few hours, then walk to lunch somewhere at a favorite local restaurant, <laughs> maybe a couple more hours uh, of reading or writing, and then I'll go to the beach and sit and watch the sunset with an Indonesian beer and read a book. And my goal, one of my goals in life, is to see as many sunsets as possible before I die. <laughs> I'm Trying to notch many many notches in my belt for sunsets as it's possible. One of the reasons I moved to the beach, I just went. I just came earlier Isn't watching it? the sunset with friends. We there's a group. We go watch them every day. Um, if we're all in town, you know. What better way to to it's spend a, your life? It's a good way to end the day. Yeah, it's a good way to. But you touching back to the film, there is a part at the end where you say, you know, "Life is better shared." That was the moral of the story for me in studying marriage and relationships that, and you know had, what it may be hard relationships may be difficult but it's so much better when you have someone to share life with now this ideal roger day have you yes. brought people on these and, and, and to have someone with me it is nothing better than to sit and watch that sunset with someone and then then go to dinner and what a perfect day yes but Finding someone who could travel with. I need to find someone who's tough. open to uh, premarital counseling. <laughs> because they say travel, I mean, that will test any relationship. <laughs> That's so true. It's, it's a right. good test because, right. you know, it can be stressful. You see how people handle stress. Yeah, everything's going to go How easy going, how, ma- how maintenance-free or high-maintenance they are. Yeah. Um, everything's going to go wrong. Yeah. And so can you roll with it? Have you had a bad trip with somebody? And uh, Rarely. Because I, I'm pretty easy to roll with things, and and I can survive. But I'm also very open to uh, suggestion and, and um, doing whatever 
you can, I feel like you can't be too rigid rigid when you're traveling. You really have to bend like the reed in the river. Yeah, you can't <laughs> overplan things. Yeah. Some people have shown me uh, itineraries for what they're doing. I said, this is, no, you got to give it some air, Do man. less, yeah. right? Plan things and then throw half of them out <laughs> and stay wherever you're staying for twice as long. Because once you get there, you just need to stay there and, and learn about the place and be there for a while. Going from here to there and seeing as many things as possible is not a way to spend your life. Aside from your camera, what are some things you can't travel without? Uh, I bring probiotics. Any uh, history <laughs> of uh, oh, bad man, stomach I, juju? I got deli belly when oh, I was I, traveling I, through I India. I did too. That sure. knocked me out for, it was eight hours of misery, which isn't too bad. Oh, we talked about the last time you were in China, you... That was the worst of my life. You ate a chicken yes. that they had just killed in front of you, pretty much. I was traveling through China, interviewing someone near the birthplace of Confucius, and I told my, I, I will get a local, like a tour guide, like a local helper who becomes my friend and translator, and brings me wherever I want to go. It's Pretty essential in a place like China. Yeah, and not super expensive. And I told him, I was traveling with my composer, Billy Sullivan. He was my uh, crew, and we were traveling together. <laughs> I, I, we told him, we want to eat where the locals eat, because we had just done that in the previous city and had the best noodles of my life. <laughs> it was amazing noodles. So he said, okay. So he, he brought us to this woman's home, somebody's house and so she put on her best dress best suit she probably had one suit and it was a tiny house and everyone lives on this you can't really call it a river it's more of a flowage and it's filled with whatever gets thrown out yeah and so we we, I wanted to interview her for the documentary when I did and I didn't want to be insulting, so the you know the question is, well, what do you want to eat? And I, so I thought, okay, probably the safest thing would be fried rice because it's fried, it's cooked, chicken fried rice. She said, okay, in Chinese, and he's translating in Mandarin. She walks into the other room, and then I hear this squawk, 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 and, and flutter, <laughs> flutter, and she walks by, and she's wringing the chicken's neck, you know, <laughs> like you know they do it where they, yes. they take a chicken and throw it around oh. like in circles, and then she threw it into this big plastic tub. And its its neck is broken, but its wings are still flapping. Oh! And Billy, my composer, he was he pale. He went white and said, "I'm gonna go. I'm I'm out of here." He said, "I'm going for a walk." <laughs> he wasn't gonna stick it out. He bailed on me. <laughs> so I stayed there and had to eat it. And she cooked it, and and I filmed her preparing it, chopping it up. And she went down to the river, and and to oh. pulled off the feathers and rinsed it out in the river. Oh, and boy. And that's probably where yeah. it happened. So I was down for two days in a hotel room feeling like I was going to die <laughs> after that. So probiotics, what else? <laughs> Always color Xerox your passport. Sure. And keep that in a separate location. Smart. Shooting Trekkies too. my sound man had his passport stolen. Ooh, And where? so uh, traveling through Italy, northern Italy, near Florence, oh, Rimini. Boy. Yeah. Left it in the car, foolishly. Someone took it. And so we ha- you have to go to the consulate, and it's much better if you've got proof. Yeah. You, it's, it's much, your life will be easier. So that's very important to always carry with you. Uh, another tip that I, I always travel with slippers, because when I get into a place, I don't want to walk around necessarily on my bare feet. 
Um, so I bring bring a nice pair of slippers that are only for walking around inside the wherever you're staying a hotel or. Mm. Uh, How very Asian of you! It, it's it's not expensive. And by the time by the end of the trip, they're they're pretty much ready for the trash, and I right. throw them out because I've <laughs> worn them out. So a different pair of flip flops for walking the town, and one for walking around inside your villa. That's smart. That's smart. If you um. Have you ever had police or anything stop you when they see you with a camera? And One time in Bali, they had a roadblock in Bali, of all in places. Bali. And I've got a driver. It costs about 60 bucks to drive from one end of the island to the other. And that's renting the guy and his car and gas and everything. You're renting a car and a driver for the day is about 60 bucks. And so they look for tourists sometimes, and they, they'll pull you sure. over. And it's ba- they just want to pay. And so the guy, it was I think it cost five bucks. <laughs> they they find some infraction. Yeah, and they're just they're just getting a tip. Okay. So, for- but I've never I've never had a problem because I travel respectfully. Yeah. And very very. Uh, the problem is when people travel, and they can't handle their alcohol, and they become loud and obnoxious. You're asking for trouble. Well, in Bali, it's usually the Australians. They uh, are kind of notorious for drinking <laughs> yeah, and notorious. partying and yeah. having a good time in That's Bali. That's like their Vegas, you know, or Cancun. Yeah, or, you know? or, Ma- or Maui. Yeah, it's their version. It's All their, combined in so one. So close, yeah. So yeah, I get away from the touristy areas Yeah, which in is Bali. like Kuta and... Is it Kuta? Am I saying that Yes. Right? Uh, and there's Seminyak, yes, I remember. Those right. are the main touristy places. That's the headquarters places. of the tourist area. So can you give us a... Uh, place because most people will Uluwatu. see that and probably stay go to Uluwatu. Uluwatu that's the southern if you look at the island of Bali it's like a barbell with a really tiny barbell on one on the southern part and then it's huge barbell on the top and if you uh, the, the touristy area is in the neck of the barbell that's where Kuta and Semnyak is yeah and it just, I've stayed there and it's fine but if you go to the southern barbell Uluwatu it's beautiful it's not that far and that's where a lot of the best surfing is. And I, and I rented a house there once on a cliff with a private beach. Just amazing. And you can see the the sunset pretty much from anywhere on that island. Except, well, here's here's a good tip for Bali. You If you stay on the east side of the island, you only see the sunrise. So I like sunsets, so I try, tend to favor the southern and northern and, and western side so I can see sunsets. Also... Very famous is Ubud. Ubud, yeah. Where you pray, seen, love. That's where she ends up at the end. Julia yeah. uh, meets, her, you know, her match. As I say, it's a lot of uh, white women walking around with yoga mats under their arms. A lot of uh, art. A lot of artwork. Yeah, sure. Artists uh, and the monkey forest. I, I brought you a picture of myself at the <laughs> monkey forest. Where don't bring any food there. Or they will. The monkeys. They'll will, find it. They'll take it from you. <laughs> Yo, absolutely. Did you did one sit on your head and uh, one sat jumped on my lap and tried to like dig into my bag? <laughs> there was a German tourist there who said a monkey bit him, and I said you might want to go get that checked. Yeah, that's not good. No, some they're scary, man. They are. You, I mean, you want to yeah, you don't want to antagonize them. them. If they flash those teeth. You go ooh. They boy. won't bother you if you don't bother them. Yeah, and they're fine. Now, also the northern part of the island is much less traveled. And you can get amazing places. You, there are places to stay there that are incredible and private and beautiful and inexpensive. Yeah. I remember staying outside of, I think it was Ubud, but I stayed out of this 
I had a beautiful room with a, a open the door outside, and there was a rice paddy, just this beautiful hilly green rice paddy, and people working in it, and it was the most peaceful, serene place. And I think it might have been like twenty five dollars or something a, a night. And yeah, because it, it wasn't. It was a little walk into the town, so it was kind of off the off the main drag. But oh my god, I couldn't believe it. I could have stayed there for a year. Yeah, <laughs> and of course the massages help. 10, Ten to twelve dollars for a massage. Oh, yeah, in that twenty five dollar place, sometimes they're called homestay, where it's it's like somebody's house. Yeah, and they've got uh, an area, a room, or a cottage. Cottages they call them homestays. <laughs> Very inexpensive. And it's wonderful because the island is Hindu primarily. Yeah. The country is Muslim primarily. Although they have Christian, they have everything. But and it's mainly it's it's eighty percent Muslim. Yeah. But the island of Bali is mostly Hindu. So you have a lot of those religious rituals and festivals going on and you know how you open up your door in the morning and there's that little display of flowers on the ground, the offerings for the various yes, Hindu yeah. gods. Yeah, like when I've been working cruise ships, and the the crew is either it's either mostly Filipino or Indonesian, mm-hmm. and that's um, you know there's a because they have mosques on board and down in the you know crew area for for the Indonesian workers, and because the Filipinos are mostly you know Catholic, so it's like yeah during Ramadan they're not eating and it's a whole thing you learn a lot yeah by, it's like working at the UN it's pretty amazing. Um, so we got to wrap this up now. So uh, tell about the movie. Where can people find it? The truth uh, about marriage. At my docu- or the documentary can be you can find anything you want about this documentary on the website, which is just the name of the film, thetruthaboutmarriage.com. and it's on Amazon, iTunes. The book is available on Amazon, and wherever you get your video, you should be able to track it down. Can they follow you on social media? Or? Twitter and Instagram. Facebook, Roger Nygaard, look me up. That's easy. Yeah. Well, what have you learned in not just this movie, but all these travels around the world about people and yourself, and how has it changed you as a person having been to all these places, and how you look at maybe America, too? It changed, it changed me. It'll change anyone so much for the better. To travel. After I did it that first time, I was changed. And I looked at America vastly differently. The two things I noticed about Americans when I came home. One is how overweight they are compared <laughs> yeah. to the rest of the world. It really hits you in the face when you get off the plane, doesn't it's it? It's bizarre. And so there's something going on with the diet and lifestyle. And the food is different here. The food is so much better. One, one reason the food is so good in Guatemala is because they didn't have refrigerators for a long time, so everything had to be fresh. And they still have this idea of ingredients should be fresh. And that makes everything so much better. It's not frozen and, you know, it's all so delicious. <laughs> and the other thing I noticed about Americans is how angry they are and frustrated when with they their have lives. Everything. They're... Everybody has this idea that whatever you've got is not enough. That's how we feel. It's what we're taught. It's what we're, we're surrounded by. We're immersed in this society where we think everyone's further ahead or doing better than us, and social media is making that, it's exacerbating it because you're seeing sure. the high, everyone's highlight this reels. What, this of, is what advertising is. I mean, it just makes us 
Look how You'll great never enough, my life is. So you have is. to buy this. Yeah, look how great everybody's life is, and and, you, and so you're comparing your inside with everyone else's outside, and it's not a fair comparison, and you feel inadequate, and that's going to make you frustrated and angry. I became much less angry and <laughs> less frustrated by traveling. And so I do it as often as possible. Every time I have a hiatus from a TV show that I'm working on, or if I'm making a documentary, I get on the road. Every chance I get. What's your next project? you have anything brewing? Can you talk about it? Well, how much, Is it travel-related? It, yes, it has to be. <laughs> and part of the reason I didn't go down the road of investigating gay marriage is because I thought this deserves an entire film of its own. So if the truth about marriage is successful, the truth about gay marriage would make a logical follow-up. And don't be surprised then if, if that's what I begin investigating next. Fascinating how that's changing and, and what people are experiencing um, from that perspective. Also, maybe another Trekkies documentary. Maybe wrap it up with a trilogy, number three. It's the Trekkie thing. It is worldwide, isn't it? I mean, oh, yes. Anywhere that TV, people have televisions, there are Trekkies, and that's basically <laughs> everywhere. That's amazing. Every continent, including Antarctica, has Trekkies. Antarctica, there's no people there. The scientists. And oh. They're r- heavily infused with Trekkies. That makes complete and utter <laughs> sense. Um, but this is cool. Thank you for coming back and doing this. Yeah, of course. You're welcome. It's good to see you. Congratulations <laughs> on the movie. I really liked it. Thank you. Well, let's uh, hit, uh, what is it, Alaska next. Yes, absolutely. Or Antarctica. I'll go back. <laughs> the two opposite ends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. That's Roger Nygaard, everyone. Yeah.